right, grab your Bibles and turn to the Gospel according to John. We're going to be in chapter 2 today. We're going to finish, the, finish chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible, we have a couple of Bibles stacked under every chair down the center column of seats. And the Gospel of John, where we will be, will be on page 577. Gospel John, chapter 2. We're going to start at verse 12 and read all the way through the end of the chapter, verse 25. And so when I see that the many of you have gotten there, we will read this together out loud. Of course, you can cheat and read it on the screen if you like. Starting at verse 12, reading all the way through the end of the chapter. Here we go. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and, three, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. All right, keep reading. Now, when, <laughs> that's funny. Y'all all stop when I stop, all right? I wasn't sure what was going on. All right, verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for your word. It brings life and light to men. We pray that it would do that for our hearts, for our souls on this day. Lord, we thank you for your gospel, for the shed blood of Jesus on the cross in our place for our sin. Lord, help us not to make light of that but to cherish the gift that Jesus gives us through his sacrificial death. Lord, we pray that we would see pictures of the gospel in this passage today that would benefit us and help us to believe. That really is what John is trying to, trying to do for us, as he did for his disciples. He's showing us Jesus encountering people just like us who, have, who are at various stages of life and have various things going on, and he's showing them signs of Jesus' deity in hopes that they might believe, but more than believe that they might receive Jesus and follow them all the days of their life. Would you do that for us today? Would you open our eyes to, to see Jesus? Would you open our hearts to receive him? And that God, would you give us the wherewithal to follow? We pray that in his great name. Amen. And amen. So in the voyage, in the in the in the chapter of the book, Chronicles of Narnia, Narnia there is a chapter called uh, The Voyage of the Don Treader. Maybe you recall the, the epic uh, movie that came uh, several years ago. I'm talking about the book because the book uh, is a little different than the movie. In fact, this is one of the only C.S. Lewis um, uh, parts of Chronicles of Narnia that the movie actually uh, differed from, from the book. But they did differ from the book in a little bit, not too much, especially as it ended. Um, and so uh, the, the voyage has ended. Uh, the, the Don Treader itself and Caspian have, um, have removed themselves from the main characters, and they're going back to Narnia. And in this case, Lucy Edmund, Eustace, their cousin, and the, the warrior mouse, Reepicheep. Remember him? Uh, they're in a small boat, and they are sailing that small boat looking for the end of the world. They're looking for Aslan country. And so this boat eventually uh, 
comes up upon ground. They get out, walk on the sand, and pretty soon the sand turns into just this lush green expanse of 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 endless beauty of of land in the far far reaches. They see mountains that go miles and miles up into the sky, and uh, unlike a normal mountain that you see that's that's high at elevation that has snow-capped mountains, these these have no, no snow on them. So they know that something is different about this this place that they're in. And they come upon, in the short nearby distance, a lamb. He's brilliantly white. He looks pure. And he happens to be cooking fish. He's making breakfast. And so they come upon him. He invites them to enjoy breakfast with them. It's delicious. And Lucy, who, uh, you know, she's just this gregarious, uh, carefree kind of a character, she starts talking to this brilliantly white lamb, um, trying to get directions on, well, we're looking for Aslan's country. We're trying to find the end of the world that, that we know. And the lamb starts giving her answers in regards to where Aslan's country is. And in the midst of him giving a reply about this place that they're looking for, his white hair starts to turn yellow. And then all of a sudden, this sweet, precious lamb metamorphosizes into a huge lion that towers over them. And the picture that C.S. Lewis is trying to get us to see, other than, I mean, he's painting a picture of, of John chapter 21, the end of John chapter 21, where Jesus is on the beach, the disciples are in a boat fishing, and they come upon a Christ figure, right? And so C.S. Lewis is painting that as, as well as giving us a glimpse of the world beyond the world that we currently know and live in, but he's also trying to, to help us see that the, the, the lamb that we know of our Savior is also a lion. In, in biblical phraseology, it would be the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world is also the lion of the tribe of Judah. If you can imagine two of those just very diverse characters residing in the same entity. The New Testament picture that C.S. Lewis is trying to help us see and unveil through the, the story of the, the voyage to Don Treader is, is, a, is a picture of Jesus, that he is both Savior and Lord. He, he loves us. He rules over us. But he's also a lamb, a sweet, precious, caring lamb, but he's the most ferocious lion. And that is the picture that we get in John 2. For those of you that are joining us, we are in the midst of a a series. We're going all the way through the, the Gospel of John. We started a, a month and a half ago. We're just getting to the end of chapter 2, and we'll be in this book for a few more months to come. And this is John's, John's goal for us, the Apostle John's goal. As he states in the end of his book, chapter 20, verse 31, he's trying to get us to believe, to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he has come from God to, to be God for us, to us. And he invites us to, to follow him. And, and John, to, to get us to believe in Jesus, he shows us all these signs. He shows us uh, encounters that Jesus has with various types of people, people like you and I. And in each one of these encounters, uh, the person is, is, is challenged to change, to see Jesus as he really is, to see that he is God to become his disciple, to follow him, to believe that the sign is pointing to Jesus as God. And that really is what John is continuing to do in chapter 2. Last week, we, we saw Jesus go to a wedding with his mom and, and his brothers and sisters, and he changes water into wine. And that was, it was a sign that, that Jesus is dating. I mean, who can change water into wine without, some, without a wine kit except for God himself? And in uh, the latter half of, of John, he's also showing us a sign, and we'll see what that sign is in a couple seconds. Verse 12. Verse 12. That means I got to go and turn to verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Now, according to John, following this miracle that he did at Cana, Jesus and his cohort went to Capernaum, and then after a few days, they went. Uh, they decided they're going to go celebrate the Passover, and so they have to make the long trek south to Jerusalem, uh, the the Israelite capital at the time. Uh, and they're going to celebrate the Passover, which served as the the occasion behind 
all the stuff that's going on in the passage of scripture that we just read. There is a little bit of of critical attention that's uh, that's um, that's looked at in this passage because when you look at the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they also show a a story of Jesus going into the temple and and ridding it of people who are defaming the temple by by wrong worship except they show it at the end of almost close to Jesus' life, close to him going to the cross and and dying on it. And so some scholars would say that really John is showing the same event. He's just um, misplacing the order. Uh, As you know, John doesn't follow the, the typical chronology that Matthew, Mark, and Luke does. John is interested in um, giving us snapshots of Jesus and proving that Jesus is God by showing us signs. Now, th- I mean, we don't need to tease this out. Um, this, this dilemma, this critical analysis of whether there were two instances of Jesus going into a temple and ridding it of people is beyond uh, most of what you all care about. I just want you to know that when you go and look at, when you go and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, and then come to John and see these events happening at different times, um, the scholars are different about that. What would I say? I would say, I believe the Bible. Believe that it's, it's, you know, days after Jesus started his ministry that he was celebrating the Passover. And as the Bible says in John, he went to Jerusalem and he cleansed the temple. Also believe the, the synoptic gospels. When Matthew, Mark, and Luke say at the end of Jesus' um, ministry, he was going into, into Jerusalem as a, as a king riding on a donkey, the sign that he was the Messiah, that he also came and he cleansed the temple of, of, of wrong kinds of worship and, and leave it as that. I think um, it's pertinent for us to see three things in this text. All right, the old three-point sermon. The first is uh, John wants us to see Jesus' zeal for worship. He wants, to see, he wants us to see what pure worship is like, and we see that through Jesus' actions here. Verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. John's gospel is, to, is, is careful to keep track of time. John is helping us know where we are in the chronology of Jesus' life, but also in the Jewish calendar by, by talking about um, different Jewish festivals and feasts and things that only happen in the Jewish calendar. And John does that for a couple of reasons. Firstly, John is not, he's not writing to Jews. He's writing to a, a, a Greek audience. John um, after he, um, after Jesus' death, John the Apostle spent most of his days right there in Ephesus, okay, a, a prominent Greek town, prominent coastal Greek town. And, and so uh, John knows that he has a Greek audience that he's trying to convince that Jesus is God. And so he's giving them information about Jews that they would normally not know. The second thing is John helps us understand uh, really the chronology of Jesus' life by mentioning the Passover. He does this deliberately. In fact, in John's gospel, he talks about three Passovers. The first one we'll see right here in chapter two. Then in chapter six, he tells us that Jesus is celebrating another Passover. And then when we get to chapter 13, all the way through the end of the book, which is which is covers the passion of Jesus, his death, his eventual death uh, on the cross. John talks about an extended Passover. And what John is doing is is helping us see Jesus lived about three years. So whenever you hear that Jesus' earthly ministry was about three, three and a half years, that's how we get that. John is helping us see the the calendar. How many times does the Passover happen once a year? uh, Happen a year? One time. How many times times do we celebrate Christmas? Actually, my family, I mean, my kids think it's Christmas like every month. Yours do too. But really, Christmas happens one time. Passover happens one time. That's how we know that Jesus, Jesus uh, ministered only about um, three and a half years. So the, this Passover was the greatest feast that the Jews had. It, uh, it, it's not like Christmas, but in terms of the, the pomp and the things that lead up to it, the celebratory aspects of, of our Christmas, um, Passover was like that. It was festive. Uh, they, they had feasts. It was liturgical. It was religious. There was all these things going on during the Passover that made it the, the, the most special celebration and tradition uh, that the Jews had. Of course, the Passover commemorated God's delivering the, the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. They were in slavery for 400 years. 
And by God's mighty hand through the, his servant Moses, he delivers them. And during the Passover, what they specifically were celebrating was the angel of death passing over the individual homes and sparing the firstborn son. And so a, uh, a, a male child, 12 years and older, were expected wherever you lived in the area to make a trek all the way to Jerusalem. And the Passover happened in the third month in the Jewish calendar. On the 10th day of the third month, you were supposed to go and pick a, a, a pure male lamb. And on the 14th day, between 3 and 6 o'clock, according to the law, you were supposed to slaughter that lamb. And that was in commemoration of the lamb that was slaughtered on the very first Passover when the angel of death passed over a particular family. And so, uh, verse 13, the, the Jews and the disciples are attending the Passover, and that's the backdrop to everything that happens. And that leads us to the situation of verse 14. It says, In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers were sitting there. All right, so the setting is the temple in Jerusalem, uh, but I think you need some background. In, in America, we don't have any spiritual event not that I can recall, in the history of our country where millions of people have come to one city for a religious event. Now, I was I remember back in the heyday of of uh, promise keepers, if any of you all remember that promise keepers had this million man march and they they asked as many men across the country to come to D.C. And I came from I was stationed at West Point. I came down with some buddies of mine and we were there. I mean, it's like a sea of men. Um, just doing what Promise Keepers does, tries you know, praying for our nation, praying for uh, us as dads and men and fathers and, and all that stuff. And that was a lot of people. I can't think of any other event in the history of our country where that's happened a whole bunch, not like, not like a, I mean, several million people for a religious event. Now, the this is, this is the most prominent worship event that goes on in our country every day. It's called the Super Bowl. Y'all, y'all heard about that? And so the temple is the, the, these, these massive billion-dollar stadiums that are built, like the Cowboy Stadium there. It's, it's beautiful, massive. The gods that we worship are these huge athletes that put on all this stuff, and they go down and they beat each other up. And the worship that we give is... It's the hooting and hollering that we do when they're, I mean, when our team is winning and the booing that goes on when our team is losing. And I would tell you there's tens of thousands that come for the game, but there's millions of people that, that, that will descend on any city in America that's hosting it for the spectacle, that hap- the spectacle that happens before and after the game. They come for the party. And so Jerusalem, imagine Jerusalem. It's, it's time for the Passover, and millions, scholars say upwards of two and a quarter million people that, that don't live there are coming from all around the Mediterranean to descend on Jerusalem for a worship event. This is the temple. This is Herod's temple, and so there's two, there's two temples. The first was Solomon's temple. It was destroyed by the Babylonians, and this is... Uh, a temple that Herod built. Herod wasn't even a Jew. He was uh, basically the king of Jerusalem, put in place by the Romans. And he was trying to win the Jews over to appease them. And so he built this elaborate palace, temple, municipal government kind of facility uh, to, to help the Jews worship, but also to help himself. And what's important about this temple is the things that were important about the, the very first temple that Solomon built in that it had an inner court right here. That's where the priests would reside. That's where the articles of worship to God uh, would have been uh, located. And it had uh, the most important part of the temple, the Holy of Holies, the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant uh, sat and, and, and that housed God's presence. And there were concentric rings around the, the temple that had various degrees of importance. The next ring would have been the outer court here, that Jews were allowed there, and this is where uh, the Jews would have come and, and brought their sacrifices to give to the priests so they could come, and, and the, the ritual of, 
of the, the, the sacrifices that were given every day. And then on the very outer, outer portion where it looks like there's steps here, this is a little blurred, is the court of Gentiles. That means, I mean, the people like us who, who didn't grow up Jewish and people who were pressing into the Jewish faith, trying to figure out what it was, that's where we would hang out. And so Jesus comes uh, upon this, and, and what he sees is what we see in verse 14. He, he sees oxen and sheep and, and pigeons flying all around. He sees uh, got tables set up, and there's money being exchanged and bartered for. And that's not what he expects. He sees exactly what you wouldn't have expected if you're coming to descend on Jerusalem for a worship event. And honestly, Jesus was was outraged. Now, this is why I say uh, Passover is like Christmas. Because of, I mean, we start like in late, now we start in October, honestly, with with the, the decorations and all that stuff. But all the things that we think about, all the things that you do leading up to Christmas, the Jews had these same things leading up to the Passover. Jesus is coming from Capernaum, long distance from Jerusalem, and with all the feasts and festivals that the Jews had, there were processionals that you came from wherever you were and you descended on Jerusalem. And in this case, they would have had, it would look like a parade, a parade filled with uh, just joy and frivolity and just all the things that, that you would consider fun as you are coming to worship your God. And Jesus would have the mindset because he's Jewish and this would have been something that he would be, he would be looking forward to that he's going to worship God with God's people, that he's going to, uh, along with them, bring a sacrifice and confess sins. And we're going to pray and praise the God who's the God of all gods. And when he gets there, he sees the exact opposite. Uh, very simply, what he sees is he sees religion being treated like a business. Religion, the religion of worshiping God, the one true God. And it looks like a business. You see, these, all these Jewish pilgrims that were coming, descending on Jerusalem, would have been coming from far and wide. And it would have been impractical for them to, although they had to bring a sacrifice, to travel the, the many distances that they were traveling and bring that sacrifice with them. And so as a form of business, there were people that brought lambs and oxen and pigeon to the temple so that people could buy them. And of course, they charged a commission for their service. And then there were uh, money changers. What this simply means is the Jews were required to pay a temple tax. It's just an offering. It's a once a year offering that they gave for the upkeep uh, of the temple and um, the, the the service of the priests. And and because the, the, the temple required a special pure silver silver coinage, uh, which most of them didn't have, especially if you're coming from a foreign city outside of outside of Jerusalem, then you had to exchange whatever you whatever money you had for the temple for the temple money. And so you had money changers that were doing this. And they charged a commission for doing that. And so you had you had all this defaming of the temple going on right there at the court of Gentiles um, where worship should have been happening. And so Jesus becomes indignant. He, I mean, that's just a nice word to say. Jesus was like, I mean, he was fed up. He was about to open a can, if you know what I'm talking about. Verse 15. And making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Verse 16, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. We'll stop there. And so, I mean, Jesus goes off. I mean, that's, there's no other, other way to explain what's happening here than Jesus is, he's got this righteous indignation and anger and he manifests it in a very physical way. The, t- the temple courts were supposed to be a place, a place where the scriptures were read, where you could come and confess your sin, where you could come and, and pray as the people of God, where you could come and worship God. And, and Jesus sees that and knows that those who genuinely want to come and worship God are experiencing everything but that. There was no spirit of worship. There was no reverence for God. This irreverent blasphemy brought a righteous indignation from Jesus, and we see him, uh, we see him go off. And honestly, 
we see a righteous anger in Jesus displayed here that we likely will not see. Uh, it's described like the wrath that will come when he comes again, his second coming. That's the kind of, of anger that Jesus shows. Verse 17. His disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. We have this picture of Jesus and, you know, he's meek and mild, right? Kids sitting on his lap. He's patting people on the back saying, oh, I forgive you for your sin. Um, We also have this picture of Jesus. He's got blue eyes, pure white skin. No offense to my Caucasian brothers and sisters. He's got this nice flowing Farrah Fawcett hair. Y'all remember Farrah Fawcett? If you, are y'all even old enough to remember Farrah Fawcett? All right, so he looked, this is what our picture of Jesus is. And we, we're given these pictures, even in our kids' books, of, of this, this is what Jesus looks like. This is how Jesus acts. And I would tell you, even if he looked like that, he sure wasn't, he wasn't nice. This is, this is how I picture Jesus in, in this instance. Jesus is an MMA fighter. He, he's, doing, he's like one of those mixed martial arts guys, and he's had about two of those five-hour energy, energy drinks. <laughs> he took them, and, I mean, Jesus was like, like, the, like in the uh, Avengers, when, uh, when Bruce Banner turns into the Hulk, he's like, all right, so he's like, uh, uh, Captain America says, I'm, I'm going off track. Okay, so I got to get this out. So this is what I'm thinking about as I'm preaching. So uh, Captain America's like, uh, Bruce, do you think you should get angry now? He's like, that's a secret. I'm always angry. Oh! And this, this is Jesus. He's like, I'm going to turn it on. Boom! I'm angry. And so Jesus picks up some ropes, the ropes that would have been tied around the animals next to, to lead him into the, the temple area. And he fashions a whip, and he's like cracking it. And honestly, you may be offended. There's many that scholars are offended at the thought that we would even assume that Jesus, meek and mild, fair faucet, flowing hair, Jesus would crack his whip and actually chase, I mean, injure men and women and, and animals away from the temple courts. But this is the zeal that Jesus was displaying right here. And sure enough, if the scriptures say Jesus made a cord, I mean, he made whips out of cords, he used it. He, he used it, folks. And you can believe anybody that was doing wrong, that were defaming worship at that moment, were chased from the temple courts. That's how zealous Jesus was for the worship of God. And what we learn here really is, is that Godly people are passionate people. We see that in Jesus' life, that we should be so jealous to guard pure worship of God, because that's what Jesus is showing us here. He's showing us there is a right and there is a wrong way to worship. We can't do anything and everything when we come to worship God. God does not accept it. Yes, he forgives us when we go awry. There's things that we do that they're just questionable, but God desires pure words. The other thing I think is fair to hear to say is Jesus was passionate for his love of good and his hatred of evil. And it's fair to say what he saw at the temple from the money changers and those that were selling animals right at the, 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 the steps of the temple were he considered that evil. So much so that he, with all the moral energy that he had in him, he was willing to cleanse it of its impurity. Here's what Malachi says. Malachi says in chapter 3, verse 1 through 3, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to the temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Malachi here is prophesying of of this day, this day that Jesus would come as a refiner and he would chase away anything that's impure in terms of its worship of, of God a pure worship that's supposed to happen at this temple. And so this is what you're supposed to learn 
from this episode. The main thing is we see Jill's, uh, we see Jesus' zeal for worship, for, for pure worship. That's what the disciples remembered when they quoted Psalm 69.9. Verse 17 is a, is a quote from David in the Psalms talking about his own zeal for the Lord. And they're applying this to Jesus and his actions. Jesus had a burning intolerance for false or perverted worship. Uh, here he's specifically rejecting worship for the sake of commerce. And I have to tread lightly here because I, I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. But very simply, there are right and wrong ways to worship God. We can't do any and everything that we want when we come gathering as Jesus Church to worship God. And I and it, and this is the phrase that I would, I would give you. What we do in worship reveals what we think about God. And so if we were to come in here and, and we're all dead and boring, it means that we think that God is not alive. And on the, on the other side of that, if we would come in here and it's, it's like a circus and we're doing any and everything, that means that we think we need to, we need to help God entertain ourselves so that he's even appealing to us. And that would be wrong as well. And sometimes we puff up the pastor, like the guy that's standing up in front. And and to do that means that we don't take the holiness of God seriously, that 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 we would say this man is is so good and we can't do without him that that we can't simply open the scriptures and, and learn as well. And so we have all these things that sometimes we do in our services uh, to, to get people to come, to win people over, to, fit, to, to get bottoms in the seats. And I would tell you, everything that we do is not necessarily pure worship. And I'm all about church growth. We, we, as a church, we need to be both missional, think missionary. We are people in this world who are not of the world. Jesus has sent us, uh, like you would be a missionary going to a foreign land, to, uh, to assimilate, to get to know where you are, and to, to, to become part of it but also to, to not forget your mission, to, to, to find people who don't know Jesus and to make him known. At the same time, we want to be attractional. That means Sunday's the day people come to church, and so we welcome them to come, and we want to make it, we want to make it easy so that a person coming to church for the first time feels comfortable here. Yeah, I know, standing up and singing to a screen, some people raising their hands. Can you remember the first time you ever raised your hand, if you ever raised your hand before as your worship? Can you remember the first time you ever did that? I can remember the first time I ever did it, and it just felt so weird. It's like, Anybody, anybody looking at me? We want to, you know, we don't want it to be weird. We want to have true worship, though. And that's Jesus' point. All right, so the first thing that, uh, that we're supposed to see here is Jesus' zeal for worship. And we're to be likewise. The second thing I think is, is important for us to see here is, is uh, the true temple. The, who, what is the true temple? The, the true temple is Jesus. Verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that was that Jesus had spoken. And so in response to uh, Jesus' actions, the Jews basically come to him, and, and they aren't saying that he wasn't right. They're actually, they're actually saying, well, I mean, why should we listen to you? So maybe we're wrong. Maybe we shouldn't be doing this at the temple because the law doesn't really give us permission to do this. But what right do you have to tell us that, that we're not right? And, and this is what Jesus does. He points to a sign. And, and, and then he says these words. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. Verse 19. The, the religious leaders there, they had no idea what Jesus was talking about. They actually literally thought he was saying, tear this temple down, and I'm going to build back up in three days. And they're looking at him as like, are you crazy? It's, this is like Herod's temple. And he started building it in 20 A.D., and it's already taken 46 years to build it, and it's not done yet. And 
They totally missed the point. But the thing is, his disciples didn't understand it either. And so John inserts this comment that it wasn't even until after Jesus died and rose from the grave after three days that they even understood that while he was talking, while he was preaching and teaching all these many years, he was always referencing um, his own death and resurrection. He was pointing to himself as, as the temple. And so, I mean, what, what is the temple? Obviously, the temple is this place that the, that the Jews erected that, uh, that would represent God in the midst of them. It was the, it was the place that housed God's presence in their midst. The temple was that uh, that was standing in Jesus' day, of course, was destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70. And so six years after they, they said, all right, it's done, it actually was torn down again because the Romans came through and, and decimated, it, decimated it. And there has not been another Jewish temple like it built ever since. And perhaps you're here um, hoping, believing like many other evangelical Christians um, and some others who who have this perspective of eschatology, the, the, the last days, you're just waiting for the Jews to rebuild their temple. And I would tell you, stop waiting because the, the temple has already been built. It, it's already been rebuilt. What's the temple? Jesus is the temple. When was the temple rebuilt? Jesus died. His body was broken. He bled. He died on the cross. He went to the grave three whole days. And God, by the Spirit, by Spirit, raised him up. God God rebuilt the temple because the temple is Jesus. They didn't understand that, but that's what Jesus was saying. And so think about this. Jesus is the living presence of God in the midst of his people. That's what John chapter 1 verse 14 is talking about. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the father, full of full of grace and truth. John used the word dwell, dwelt, which is the the word in the Old Testament used for tabernacle. And there you should think of of three different structures. You should firstly think of a a tent They just erected a tent that Moses um, had instructions for. And they put the Ark of the Covenant in the middle of it. And God came and his, his presence just dwelt in the midst of the people there. And then later Solomon built this grandiose uh, palace building that housed God's, God's spirit. And then later, of course, we have, have Herod's temple. But in, in all of these, the temple was representative of God being in the midst of his people, of choosing to be around them, of, of, of showing his care, his love, his concern for his people by being near them. And John gives us this perspective that Jesus is that God, that he becomes flesh, he becomes one of us. And so here's, the, here's what's going on in the temple. There's, there's a couple of things that are very important about the temple. One of the most important things, obviously, is the Ark of, Ark of the Covenant. It has some, some neat things in it. It had manna. It had Aaron's staff that budded, the Old Testament tells us. It had the, the stone tablets with God's, God's finger, finger writing on it, uh, the Ten Commandments, the moral law that we should follow even to this day. But probably the very most important symbol, the very, important, very important, most important artifact in all of uh, all of the, the imagery we get from the, the tabernacle, the tent, the, the, the stuff inside the temple is the mercy seat. The mercy seat was like the lid on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And one day a year, the Day of Atonement, the priest could come, he'd slaughter an animal, he'd take its blood, and he'd sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat. And, and on that day, sprinkling that blood would, would be a sign that God forgives, that God gives grace to his people that don't deserve it, that he extends mercy to people like you and I that, that, that sin and sin very greatly. And so this is the picture that John wants us to get. Jesus not only is the temple, Jesus is the, he's the stuff in the temple. He's the very presence of God. He is the mercy seat. And so when John provides the commentary in verse 21 that Jesus was not talking about the literal temple, but about his body, it points to the fact that Jesus' death on the cross serves as a place where sin is forgiven and where man is received in, in God's grace. And that's what the mercy seat was. The rebuilding of the temple, all that to say, took place on the day of Jesus' resurrection. Jesus 
is the temple. And he was pointing to his son. Here's the deal for us. All that imagery is, is, is there for us. We, are, we, aren't any, we aren't unlike the Jewish leaders of that day who were looking for a sign. I mean, tell us why you can do this. And if you're, if you're honest with yourself, I think every day of your life, in overt and, and covert ways, you are asking God to give you a sign. Um, so, Lord, if, if I'm in great need, I'm stuck, I'm in a pickle, and if you, will, if you will get me out of this mess, so help me, I will serve you all days of my life. And then, I mean, maybe God doesn't, maybe he doesn't. If he does it, then they're like, yes, I love Jesus. And if he doesn't, you're like, I mean, where is God when I need him? We ask God to, Lord, help, tell me, tell me, give me a sign of what I'm supposed to do in my career. Give me a sign of what I'm supposed to, what, what subject I'm supposed to study when I go to college. Tell me how many kids I'm supposed to have. Tell me, how, how, tell me what relationship between the five people that I'm like trying to date right now are, are right for me. We, we come to God in all these ways asking for signs. And of, of course, if God gives you an answer to your question, then you say, Lord, thank you for the sign. I'll serve you. But when you don't see the sign that you need, then it, it's almost as if you don't know God as well. Here's what we should get out of this passage. God has already given us all the signs we need. God says to the Apostle Paul that the greatest sign in all of history that points to who Jesus is, is his resurrection. Jesus was a man that came from God. He lived a life like you and I, walked roads, ate food, went to the bathroom. I shouldn't say that during the sermon. And by God's plan, he went, he went and died on a cross for sins that he did not commit for you and I. And that God, that same God, was raised from the dead. And this is the deal. God is only, he sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sin only one time. So when you sin this week, when you sin later on in the day, Jesus is not going to die and then go into the grave and be resurrected for that again. It's a once for all dying for the sins of all people. And Jesus appeases the wrath of God for you I mean, it's, it's a once for all thing for all your sin, past, present, future. Jesus has done that for you. That's what the resurrection is for us. And that's why this image of the temple, the true temple, is so important. Christ is the temple. And the beautiful thing is after Jesus rose from the grave, he established his church. And the New Testament says that all of us in the church, we are the body of Christ, that we have these various things that we are supposed to do in the church. That's uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 27, Ephesians 1, 23. This means that we now serve the function that the temple once did. We are the temple. That's what Paul says. Don't you know the Holy Spirit dwells in you? You are the temple of God. And so the, the temple pointed for the temple, the physical structure, the, ta- the tent, the tabernacle, this, the structures that, that Solomon and Herod built, they pointed forward to Jesus. But now that Jesus has died, raised, and gone to heaven, He's, he gives us the Holy Spirit, and we are the temple of God. And our lives should always be pointing back to the atonement, Jesus dying in our place for our sin. Last thing, Jesus' knowledge of man. Verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when he saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about about man, for he himself knew what was in man. I, I would I would just tell you these aren't flat, these aren't meant to be flattering words. This is almost John is like giving a rebuke on Jesus' behalf. Um, he's saying, you know what? There's some shady stuff going on. They didn't really believe in anything. They just wanted a sign. Jesus gave them a sign. He's like, I'll follow you, but their hearts didn't follow. Their hearts weren't in it. That's what he's saying. And so here's the interesting thing that's, that's happening here. This verse is meant to be a transition between everything we've already read in chapter 2 and then what we will see next week in the following weeks in chapters 3 and 4 when Jesus engages Nicodemus and he engages the woman at the well. 
He's saying people look for signs and I'm here with the sign and and, and they ain't they ain't seeing what they should see about me. Specifically, uh, this is uh, this is unique in how Jesus responds. We're, we're all asking for signs. And Jesus says, you know what? You might believe in me. We, we, we get the, the perspective. Jesus did more than just a few miracles. John doesn't give us all of them. There's some unspecified things that Jesus did that caused a whole bunch of people to believe in him. And the scripture simply says they believed in Jesus. Jesus didn't believe in in them, which all goes on to say God knows us better than we know each other. God knows us better than we know ourselves. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says man looks on the outward appearance, but but the Lord looks on the heart. First Samuel 16, verse seven. You know, we think we know other people. but We really don't. We think we know ourselves, but we really don't. God knows our hearts is what the Bible says. Acts 15, chapter eight. Excuse me. 15, uh, chapter 15, verse eight. Romans eight twenty seven says God searches our hearts. Hebrews four thirteen says no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Y'all are, I mean, it's like, it's as if before God, you have no clothes on. You're sitting here looking at me and you're naked. That should scare you. And so here's the, here's the question that John asks, that we should ask. What did Jesus know about man? What does Jesus know about us that we might not even know about ourselves? And it's simply this. Jesus knows our hearts, and he knows that our hearts don't always have pure motive. In fact, oftentimes they don't. Jesus knows that we can be wicked and deceitful. And those probably sound like harsh words for most of you, but just flip through your Bible and read what the Bible says about you and your heart. We have this perspective of a person does a good deed, and that means they're good which means their heart is good. Oh, you did a nice thing. You must have a nice, kind heart. The Bible doesn't agree with that. The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Jeremiah 17, 9. We're told often to trust our heart, to follow our heart, but the Bible says that is a dangerous thing, and you should be very careful before you follow even your own heart. The great tragedy of our human race is that because of the infection of sin, our hearts are wicked and deceitful. And I know some of you are like bucking up against that. But here's the deal. I don't know. Check your heart. Analyze your heart. I mean, what do you... We can deceive even our own selves. And, and so if we can, be, if we can deceive our, even our own selves, I mean, what do we do? How do, I, how do I have a good heart? What does it mean to have a good heart? Therein is salvation. What, is, what does the Bible say? God wants us to have a new heart. That's what we're learning in in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. God offers to give you a new heart. The Old Testament says it like this. I'll replace your heart of stone with a heart of clay. God being able to just mold it and shape it into his image, not necessarily in the image that you think you should be shaped into. And honestly, even after you become a Christian, you have the tendency to have a wicked heart because of just the ongoing sin in you. And therein is the sanctification process, which will last the rest of your life. I'm not trying to, trying to paint a bleak picture. There's good news in this. Here's the good news. Even though Jesus knows all people, that's what verse 24 says, he doesn't abandon us. Isn't that good news? Jesus does not abandon you. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to save people he knew so well. He sees us, we're naked before him, and not all of us look good. Through our wickedness and our sin, the thing that Jesus does is he speaks truth to us. He spoke truth to the money changers and those who brought animals uh, defaming the temple. He said, you're, you're, you're bringing impure worship to a place where we should be worshiping God. He'll do that with Nicodemus. He'll do it with the woman at the well. He does it with Peter when Peter tries to get him to to forsake going to the cross. He says, get behind me, Satan. Secondly, and most importantly, Jesus responds to his knowledge of our wickedness and our sin by dying on the cross. Jesus didn't die for us because he knew that we were good, but because he knew we were bad. He knew that there was no other way for us to be saved unless he laid down his life for us. And that really is good news for us. 
Jesus knows all about you. You know, we cover up in so many ways. We're just like Adam and Eve. We sin. We do the thing God says not to do. And uh, we go hide. And then we go get some fig leaves and we cover up. And this is what scripture says. Jesus knows you. And in spite of what he knows about you, he still loves you. Jesus loves you as if you have bad hair and bad breath in the morning. That's how much he loves you. And then he cleans you up. He turns your ugly heart. He cleanses it and renews it. And then he pats you on the bottom like an athlete. And he says, go out with your new heart and love the ugly, unlovely people around you like I've done to you. That's the kind of God we serve. That's Jesus. And so how should you respond? And I'm, I'm, I'm done with this. The first thing is, notice, Jesus says, I can't, you believe in me because I've done a sign. Here's the thing. Uh, believing is not seeing. It's not. Seeing is believing. It's the opposite. And so Jesus welcomes us to believe without seeing a sign. And some of you here, you just need to commit. You're waiting for a sign. You're waiting for Jesus to 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 do something that you've asked him to do. And he simply says, I want you to see with, I want you to believe without seeing. That's true faith. And then there are others of you who, who just, who need to, you need to, you've believed in Jesus, but you're, you have a half-hearted belief. He's welcoming you to jump in with both feet, close your eyes, go all the way under that kind of commitment. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this picture that, that John gives us of an indignant, Jesus, who with all of his moral energy is willing to be so passionate that he would toss out those who would defame the, the true worship of God. God, would you make us so passionate? Would you make us zealous people that we would be that indignant when we see worship happening wrongly in our own lives, in the life of, of people around us, and even in our church? Lord, uh, really what we see in here is is you want us to believe. You give us signs to help us to believe, but you still challenge us. Believing is not seeing. Anybody can do that. True faith is when you believe what you don't even see. God, that's the kind of people we want to be. We want to be people who believe in you even when we don't see the sign. Give us hope. Give us courage. Help us to commit to something like that. We pray that in Jesus' great name. Amen. And amen.